It is really good to be here. Thank you for having me. One of my joys is to be able to open up God's Word with God's people. Uh, he had mentioned that I'm pastor of Crossway Baptist Church. We meet at Stockdale High School, and the Lord is strengthening our ministry and growing us, and we are uh, thankful to be uh, a sister church of Grace Bible Church. We're thankful for what the Lord's doing there. Um, I appreciate this weekend the theme of the conference, and, and I hope it's valuable to you all. You should have notes. If you don't have notes, um, I, I started to write basically an article, and it's about 30 pages long, and I just couldn't wrap it up. If you want it, you can email me. I'll email it to you. This is just the outline version of it. Um, so uh, yesterday afternoon, I realized I just would, wouldn't have time to finish it and finish it right, so I turned it all into just an outline this morning for you. So it's a little, there are some typos in there. I apologize for that, but uh, hopefully it'll be productive for our discussion this morning. Uh, let me also add this. If you want to interrupt me and ask a question, please do. Um, I'm happy interacting with people. That's, uh, frankly, somewhere I'm comfortable. Um, so if, if there's something I mention in terms of the Trinity and its interaction with, uh, within the persons of the Trinity, Trinity, please uh, make sure that you stop me. Because if we move on, it's really hard to build that context back when you ask me the question at the end. So rather than me teaching through and then asking questions at the end, uh, just right in the middle of it, raise your hand. I'll try to stop and give you an opportunity to, to ask me, and I'll interact with you in that. What, what I find interesting, and I, I know it's hard at a conference like this, is building out the doctrine of the Trinity. And I have no idea where you guys come from. So theologically, there are probably people who have never really considered the doctrine of the Trinity. And there are probably some of you who you've thought through it, you've worked through it, maybe you've read a couple articles, or you've asked your pastor for a book, and you've read books on the Trinity, Trinity. And so you come more uh, informed than maybe the average Christian. Uh, if you were reading my paper, the first paragraph would say, let's face it, the Trinity sounds boring. It does, doesn't it? I mean, I have met very few Christians that are fascinated by the Trinity. Usually they have one of two extreme op- like ideas, and that is, it's so complex and so confusing and so beyond us that we just quit, we give up. Or... I've met other people, and there are fewer of them, that think it's so, like, they just get it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I, I can remember a conversation where someone's like, oh, yeah, the Trinity is easy. It's just like, and I think they gave the example of Kool-Aid. They said, it's just like Kool-Aid. I'm like, Kool-Aid, really? The Trinity is like Kool-Aid. I'm like, yeah, you know, you have, like, your Kool-Aid mix, sugar, and water, and they're all three one. <laughs> like, oh, man. <laughs> you haven't figured out you should be teaching. Um... Let's just be honest. There are, there are not good analogies in the world around us to build a doctrine of the Trinity on, or the Bible would have used them. And it gives us a few analogies, but it really doesn't give us very many. So no, don't ever use an egg to illustrate the Trinity. Don't use Kool-Aid or water. Uh, God would have used those if they were sufficient. In fact, I think the best analogy we have for at least um, an aspect of the Trinity is Father and Son. Because that's exactly what God uses to describe his relationship between Father and Son. And then Spirit as well. But even there, I think he is speaking by analogy into into what happens within the Trinity. And so, there is a level at which you should be happy knowing that God is way beyond you. In fact, let me me see if I can find this quote for you by uh, John Calvin. Because I thought, I thought what he said was enjoyably humbling. Here's what he says. For who of even a slight intelligence does not understand that, 
as, a, as nurses commonly do with infants, God is wont in measure to lisp in speaking to us. Now, when he uses lisp, he's not thinking of someone who can't pronounce things well. He's talking of a nurse within a little baby who talks to the baby in baby talk. Have you ever talked to a baby like that? I always get a kick out of watching grown men and you know serious grandpas take up a little baby and and they like you know like talking little baby talk like and you get this grown adult who's intelligent with baby talk and that's the analogy Calvin gives for how God is speaking to us now why would God speak to us like we would speak to a baby because when compared to God our minds are baby minds. We just cannot grasp the beauty of who God is. Calvin continues, he, he speaks in measure, lisps to us. Thus, such forms of speaking do not so much express clearly what God is like as accommodate the knowledge of Him to our slight capacity. To do this, He must descend far beneath His loftiness. And so this morning, we are going to hear God lisp. We're going to hear God give us some baby talk. And each one of us is going to go, That is way beyond me. And it is. Because our God is incredible. Our God is glorious. Um, We love worshiping. Have you ever noticed how we are worshipers? We're built to worship. We're built to be amazed. Uh, If you you like watching sports, you usually like watching professional sports. I I personally don't think the WNBA is going to ever make much money. Because most men who've played high school basketball look at the WNBA and they think, I could do that. Now, whether or not they could, or it's just their imaginations thinking they could do that, you're not wowed. But when you watch professional sports, and you watch what some of those athletes can do, or you watch the Olympics, and you watch the world's best, we say, wow, that's amazing. Or we go to the ocean, and you just enjoy the beauty because it's big. Or the Grand Canyon. We love worshiping. So the last thing we want to do this morning is anything that would make God Small. We want to walk away thinking God is big. If you have your Bibles, open them to John 17. So the theme that I would like to develop with you this morning is community within the Trinity. I'm actually going to use the word fellowship by the end of this, and that's because I think it's the best word for us to use. The problem problem with using the word fellowship in a conversation like this is when you think of fellowship, most of you probably think of talking. Uh, when, I, when I mention at church we're going to have a fellowship, people think of eating and talking. And so we've simply made fellowship this idea of chit-chat and conversation. And it's really not a biblical concept. That's a, that's a modern concept. Uh, but, but when you look in John 17, I want you to look down with me. In verse 21, we'll read just through verse 23. Actually, let me back up to verse 20. That's where the paragraph starts. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now when you consider this section, you can see that Jesus is praying. I, I love this prayer for, for one major reason. I think it's unusual. 
Jesus is nearing his death. And he's praying about what's going to happen and praying for his disciples as he leaves. And you can imagine, maybe as a dad or a parent, if you knew you were going to pass away and you're going to leave your children without parents, what types of concerns would be going through your soul? And this is who Jesus is in this moment. He is leaving behind his, his disciples, his, his men who he has poured his life and invested in. And he's praying for them. But notice at the beginning of verse 20, he's not just praying for them, but for whom? For us. Those who believe through their word. That's, that's us today. Now, I, I believe that Jesus Christ, being the Son of God, has a mind that is omniscient. Are you with me? And that it would be fully within the capabilities of the Son of God while he is praying in the garden to not just be praying generically for us, but as he's saying the words, those who will believe through their word, that he could be thinking of you by name. And I find that stunning. So what does Christ pray for you? Christ prays that you would be one, that you would be one with the rest of the community of believers around you. Just like, and notice the analogy, just like he and his father are one. So if we're going to get to the application, Jesus is praying that you would be one, then we have to first understand the Trinity and how the Trinity is one. Now again, the doctrine of the Trinity is probably not something we hear very often. If you are on page one with me, it says, a divine delight in unity. God loves being one. You'll notice that little uh, diagram over there. You guys see that diagram? And those circles represent what? You guys see those circles? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So they represent the three persons of the Trinity and trying to connect those truths. You, got, uh, uh, you have uh, the Son is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And then the lines on the sides, is not, is not. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. Okay. You guys all see that, anal- that like diagram? That's one of the better diagrams or analogies of the Trinity I've seen on paper. Let me ask you, how many circles are in this diagram? Does that seem like a problem to you? Are there four beings in the Trinity? How many beings are in the Trinity? (laughs) Even that's a hard question, isn't it? We have one God. God is one. And he exists in three persons. So at best, there should only be three circles. There is no fourth being. There is no fourth person. There is no otherness of God where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have some fourth essence. So even this picture, which I think does a fairly good job, but really this picture would probably be better not being a picture, but just being statements. And that is the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and and the Father is not the Spirit. And then, on the flip side, the Father is God, Jesus is God, or excuse me, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But as we, as we continue on, I want to ask this question, how important is the Trinity? Athanasian Creed says this, Whoever will be saved, before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic. Now, that means the universal churches, not the capital C Roman Catholic Church. Church. He must hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except every one do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. Now, now he's saying, or the, the Athanasian Creed is saying, they, they must believe this or they die. They that worship God, worship God in Trinity. Do you notice that? 
If you don't believe the Trinity, the Athanasian Creed says you cannot be saved. I think that's biblical. I think that's what John says. If you deny the Son, who else do you deny? The Father. And if you don't accept the Son, you don't accept the Father. And if you accept the Son, you must accept the Father. So they're connected. Now this divine unity, what does it mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. God does not want you to be one like He is one in this sense. God is one God who exists in three persons. God does not want us to be one essence. We cannot be one essence. This is one of the ways God is not like us. So it's not what the passage is talking about. Jesus is not praying that somehow you'll share some human essence with the rest of the church. It really doesn't even make sense. I don't even know what that would look like. But his prayer is that we would share fellowship as he fellowships with the Father and as the Spirit, who is not necessarily explicitly mentioned, would also fellowship with him. In other words, he wants us to have, and I, I use the word community, that is, we'd have unity and oneness among the people of faith. And that's what he's praying for. So how does God have oneness? How does God have fellowship within the Trinity? Or what does community within the Trinity look like? Any thoughts? Mutual everything. Wow. That covers it all. Everything. Literally. Okay. If we, if we look at the passage, I think he starts to give us hints. But if we look then in the broader context of how John writes and how he pulls forward things to our attention for us to consider in the interaction of the Trinity. In fact, when he starts his letter, this gospel, what is the very first thing he starts with? In the beginning, and the Word... And was with God, right? So we have with God and was God, which identifies immediately that Christ, who is the Son, is deity and different. I mean, he just, he just launches a nuke in verse 1 against the Jewish system that would have been a, a single entity of God with a single person of God and, and stretches it and says, there is a single essence of God, but there are at least two, just from verse 1. He is divine, he is God, and he's also different than God when he says he's with God because he's able to have fellowship with God. The rest of the book is Jesus lives his mission and John is proving that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing we'd have life in his name. He is pulling forward the character of Christ as divine so we would believe and be saved. And so we see this unfolding of Trinitarianism with a, a particular focus on Christ's divinity, on his sonship. So, so it's a great book for us to, to understand the Trinity. In fact, I think if we lost the book of John and, and his letters, we would lose most of our doctrine of the Trinity. We would lose most of it. Not all of it. It's there. In fact, just a foundational thought. Look with me in John 3. So Chris did this this morning a little bit, just pointing out some of the, the value of the Trinity in the Old Testament. How obvious was it in the Old Testament? Obvious enough, obvious enough that Nicodemus gets scolded. So Jesus is talking in, in 3... Nicodemus comes to him at night. Remember, he's, he's somewhat um, afraid of his reputation being ruined by a meeting with Jesus. So he asks Jesus, how can I be saved? Jesus says, you must be born again. The discussion goes on. If you look in verse 5 with me, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit here, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
And as he continues to explain this, verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? So Jesus has said, if you want to be brought into heaven, you need to have regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus says, basically says, what? How does that work? Who is that? How does that? What are you talking about, Jesus? Look at Jesus answered him, verse 10. Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? What is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? No, what? You should, what, what truth? That, that being born again comes about from the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is criticizing Nicodemus for not seeing that in the Old Testament. Is the, is the Old Testament Trinitarian? It is. It must be, or Jesus' statement here really makes no sense. And Nicodemus should have understood that and should have embraced a Trinitarian theology from the Old Testament. He's a teacher of Israel. He should know better. This is like meeting a calculus teacher at the university who can't add. That might frighten you. They should be able to add. Now, maybe it's realistic in this world, but it shouldn't be. All right. As you consider the the work of the Trinity or the unity of the Trinity... Um, let's start with this thought. The foundation of the Trinity's unity is indwelling. Now, I, I want to ask you a question, so be honest. Okay, admit if you don't know, because I'm just curious. How many of you knew that God indwells God? Raise your hand. That's awesome. For this reason, this is new for you. Isn't that fun to learn something new? Come, come with me back to chapter 17. Because I think this is fascinating. Look how Jesus says this. Go back into verse 21. He wants us to be one just as, Father, you are what? In me. Doesn't that sound like indwelling? Continue on. And I in you. So, so Jesus is praying to the Father and saying, Father, I want them to be unified and then he immediately almost backtracks and says, I want them to be unified because we are unified through what? I'm using the word indwelling. I think that's probably the best way to communicate. Uh, you see a list of like Latin-based words after that. If you read a systematic theology book, those are the words they use. So I think you would prefer indwelling over circumincessio. <laughs> circumcessio. Circumcessin, perichoresis, or co-inherence. I thought indwelling made more sense to us, since we are used to that, right? But here's the thought. The Father indwells the Son. The Son indwells the Father. And I think by, by implication, then, we'd understand the same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit indwells both of them, and vice versa. They both indwell the Holy Spirit. Now, if your mind isn't starting to just ask the questions, what does that even look like? How does God indwell God? In fact, because we have a little bit of time, I, I, I enjoy the opportunity not only to learn, but to push you to think through what you already know. What does indwelling mean for you? Can we just spend like three minutes on this? God, God indwells you, right? If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you. I think we could say, Romans 8, the Spirit of Christ is in you. Um, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that then we could understand the Father also indwells you. So you're indwelled by the Trinity. What does that mean? 
That's a real question, so you can answer now. inside of you and then he Jesus tells the same thing to his disciples comforting them and saying Jesus is going to or I'm going to send a helper and it's going to come and live inside of you so God has a seems like a deep desire to be with his people so he he's, he genuinely wants to be in relationship with them so okay. to me it means something pretty significant or it's massively significant so you said a lot of a lot of true things there and I, I want to kind of pull a couple of those things apart you said it's God being with us okay you're right but I'm going to make you sound wrong, so stick with me. Is God omnipresent? So is God with everybody? Right? No, no I'm, not, I'm not trying to make what you said wrong, because what you said is right. But we don't mean that, do we? We don't mean omnipresence, because then actually indwelling means nothing. Because by, by omnipresence, God is everywhere, at all times, in all places. Correct? That's what omnipresence means. So that's not what this means. That's not what indwelling can mean. Otherwise, unbelievers are indwelt. Because God is with them. But God is not with them in the way you mean with them. Right? Right. Like, I'm with my wife, but I'm with you too. But it's a little... Yes, we are, we are with each other in way different ways. I am, I am, I am very clear on that. No, that's actually a really good analogy in that you have a special and unique relationship of affection and love with her. Well, we are in the same room together. We are not with each other. We would have had to make that clear 30 years ago. Now we do. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I was not disagreeing with his with us, but I think we're trying to define what with us means, and you're saying fellowship, right? Okay. And I think it means more than just fellowship. If you, if you look in the passages, I think indwelling is, is foundational to fellowship, the way Jesus speaks of it in John 10 and John 14 and John 17. Um, uh, indwelling is, is part of what builds out this fellowship, but it's more than that. John 14.10. This is point B if you're up with me on page 2. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Okay, can you see indwelling in that context there? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells, see indwelling? Who dwells in me does what? Does his works. So who is working in Jesus? The Father is. So that Jesus is able to say, through indwelling, I am enabled to, or given the words to say, so that my ministry is actually a godly ministry. A Father-driven ministry. So indwelling empowers or, or equips him to serve. Acts 10 makes it very clear. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And that's what we mean by with him. Not just like ever-present or omnipresent. What we mean is that God is empowering and strengthening and equipping and enabling. So when Jesus considers fellowship, it's not simply we're sitting down and the Father and I are, are, are chit-chatting. It's that God's, God the Father's presence is on the Son in such a way that what the Son does 
The Father does. This is really clear in Isaiah 11. As someone who believes that Jesus Christ is in one day in the future going to rule and reign and establish his kingdom, Isaiah 11 tells us how he's going to govern. And it says the Holy Spirit is going to come on him and he is going to govern with righteousness and justice and integrity. Now you think about this. Who is Jesus? He's the Son. And the way he's going to administrate is going to be a spirit-led and empowered ministry of kingship. Now, I don't think that's insignificant. That even in Jesus' example and life, the Son and the Spirit and the Father are all twined together, laboring under the mutual empowerment and indwelling of one another. Now, this is, here's why it's important. How do you live in community? If you are to be one, live in unity. As God lives in unity, what's the foundation of your unity? God indwells us. And indwelling leads to empowerment, enablement, and equipping. Now, now, is that what this passage seems to indicate? Look again with me in verse 21 and then in verse 23. I want them to be one. I'm going to carve out the middle of the verse so you can see how the sentence flows. I want them to be one so that the world, so that is a purpose clause. I want them to be one with this purpose that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now here's why I think we have to have indwelling in this passage. Because if, if we have unity Simply like a bunch of crazies on Sunday wearing uniforms that have numbers on them and holding beer and cheering for grown men with a ball. There is nothing supernatural about that and there's nothing that would stop the world and have them say, whoa, something different is there. That won't happen on Sunday at a football game. Because you don't need indwelling to cheer. (laughs) You might need indwelling to cheer for the Raiders. You wouldn't need indwelling to cheer for other football teams. I'm just saying it would take a lot of sanctification to cheer for that team. No, those those types of things, you you don't need indwelling to find unity over your favorite hobby. You don't need the power of God to find unity with other unbelievers doing tasks that you enjoy and hobbies that you love. What you do need indwelling for is the type of unity that is mentioned in this passage. And we'll get to the content of what that unity looks like in a minute. But I think because the world stops and has to reconsider how we got the unity, we have to assume that this is a supernaturally produced product. It cannot be plagiarized by the world. There can be no legitimate counterfeiting by Satan. The community of the Christian faith ought to be absolutely empowered by God and unique. Something happens on Sunday morning at your church when you gather together under the sound of God's word and sing to your Lord together that cannot be plagiarized in a Jehovah's Witness hall. And we ought to recognize that because if I'm going to be a little bit challenging to the church today, I'm not sure that we're not living 
in our own strength and going to the church that we just enjoy and love the best. And it's nothing very supernatural in how we interact in unity with everyone else. Did did that make sense? If we choose church just because it suits us and we have no binding commitment to the church and we don't unify with it the way God is unified, then nothing supernatural is happening in that community with your attachment to it. So if you just simply go to a church and wear a jersey and cheer for the pastor, by analogy, then you ought to understand you are not yet seeing the fulfillment of Christ's prayer in your life. And there's something better for you. Something richer in the community of faith. Okay, point three. I actually don't know what time I'm supposed to end, so I'm just going to keep rolling. Um, I think I'm ending at 3.30, so we should have some good time for questions here. Unity and glorification. Each person in the Trinity, and here we're going to get a little heady. When I start each section, I'll get a little heady, and then I'll try to pull it back to, to where we live. Each person in the Trinity is in pursuit of glory for the other person by enhancing each person's reputation and fame. There's two ways we think of glory. So God's glory refers to His character. That is, he is glorious God. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's powerful. He's righteous. That's who he is. But there's also the reputation. So we glorify God, not by giving him something he doesn't have, but by describing who he is. So on a Sunday morning, when you sing songs, it's not as though you're giving God something he doesn't have. You're describing him. So speaking of people who are unified and have no spiritual unity in it, um, I don't know if any of you are fans of like, Classic cars or automobiles. I'm not particularly. uh, I drive a minivan if you want any proof that I'm not particularly committed to cars. But when you think of an incredible car and you see a car fanatic, you see some guy who's who's bought this classic, maybe it's a 57 Chevy, you know, the ones with the the, the fins in back, and he is... Uh, gone through all the trouble of fixing it, and he, he's customized it, and he's labored on it for years, and then he drives it out to a car show. If you want to be bored and you don't like cars, just ask him about his car. What is he going to do? I mean, have you ever been in one of those conversations like, oh, nice car, and for the next 20 minutes, you just have a grown man effusing like a junior high girl about his car. What's he doing? He's glorifying. And he's probably not lying when he's talking about all the cool stuff and 18 coats of paint and all of the things he's done to make his baby pretty. But he's, he's honoring his car. He's glorifying it. The Trinity loves to enhance his reputation The Father to the Son and the Spirit. The Son to the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit to the Son and the Father. He loves showing how glorious He is. God loves who He is. I know when you look in the mirror, you probably all all see the things you don't like. I mean, that's how we're kind of taught to look in the mirror. It's like you look in the mirror like, oh, I need to fix my hair. I need to do this and this and this. When God looks in the mirror, He is glorious. And he wants others to come and say he is glorious. And so, he glorifies himself. And, and I, I, I think I stated this, God glorifies God. 
And here's what we mean by that. Look in Matthew 3.17. I've listed these passages just to save us time because I want you to see this is thoroughly biblical. Um, let me skip Matthew 3 because it's repeated and I think a richer uh, description in Peter. John 8.50. I do not seek my own glory, Jesus says. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Who is glorifying Jesus in that passage? God the Father. John 8.54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. And his point is this. Everyone brags. If I'm just another braggart saying how awesome I am, that doesn't mean anything. But if God the Father glorifies me, there's significance. John 17, 1. Jesus had spoken these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And then Jesus prays that the Father would glorify him. 2 Peter 1. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. Some of you know Joe Moore. Yesterday I was walking up to the conference. I haven't seen Joe in a couple weeks. And he comes to me holding out his cell phone with a picture of his grandbaby. Saying, look, this is my grandbaby. He's proud as he can be of his, of his grandson. And here you have the father telling the world, this is my son. I love him. And in some ways, the reason God is saying that is because Christ has shown His glory in obedience, in baptism, and commissioning Himself for ministry. And God is like a proud father saying, Hey, everybody, look at my son. He's glorifying His son. Now, that's a picture I think we don't see often of the Trinity. That God loves glorifying God. The Father loves glorifying the Son. Um, in your notes, John 17 should be moved down to the next category. This is Son glorifying the Father. It says this, Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. John 17, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. How do you know Jesus is not just about himself? Because he was never about himself. He was always about the Father's glory. John 13, 31, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. As Jesus went to the cross, the Father glorified him. But in going to the cross, he was glorifying the Father. John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus' life and ministry filled the Father's glory in this earth. Or filled the earth with his glory. 2 Corinthians 3, let me just briefly mention this. This is the ministry of the Spirit in the Word. And that is the Holy Spirit is taking and showing us the glory of Christ. And that's his ministry right now. So you look at how the Trinity is glorifying other members of the Trinity so that the Spirit right now is at work as we read the pages of Scripture showing us Christ so that we might see His glory. In fact, that's what 2 Corinthians 4, um, 5 and following says is that the, the God of this world is blind in the eyes that they might not see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's right now the Spirit's work is to show us the glory of Christ. Philippians 3, 3. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. John 15, the ministry of the Spirit. He will come, and what's He going to do? He's going to bear witness about whom? Jesus. That's His ministry, is to glorify the Son. His ministry right now is through the pages of Scripture to open your eyes that you would behold the beauty of the face of Christ. The Spirit right now is glorifying Christ. So what does this mean? 
One aspect in which the Trinity is fellowshipping together in unity is by mutual glorification. Now I want to go back to the theme thought here in John 17. Jesus is praying that you would be what? One. Even as He is one. So God is praying for believers to have unity that's analogous, that's drawn from His unity and reflects His unity. It's founded on indwelling and the empowering work of God. Now let me just just draw one more theological point here before we get to application for the church. What God loves seeing is godliness. Now, I I think I had a quote earlier in your notes by um, Skogel and then Piper. If you're on page three, this is a worthy meditation for us. The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency, now this is uh, Henry Skogel, and Piper is going to reflect on him in just a moment. Uh, as, as a pastor, every once in a while you enter into a sad counseling situations. Uh, let, let's just have an, um, an, an example here. It's not true necessarily. Imagine a father comes to me and says, Pastor, I don't know what to do with my daughter. She's 17. And I just found out last night that she's dating this guy, and he's not a believer. Man, he, I, I, think, I think he's in a gang. He's a total bum. Now, as he's talking to me, I know in the back of my mind, and I don't necessarily have enough guts to say it, but I'm thinking, you know, there's a major problem that you're not, you're not considering, and that is the way to prevent this and keep this from happening was over the last 17 years. But your daughter liking someone who's in a gang and someone who's not a believer isn't just a bad situation about this. It also says a lot about what? His 17-year-old daughter. She likes someone who doesn't share faith in Christ, which is disobedience to Scripture, if she's planning on marrying him. He's, he's living in a culture that is completely godless in terms of being involved in gangs. And she likes him. Doesn't that say something about her heart? Now that's the point that, that Skogel is making. That is, you can measure the depth and the the breadth of the human soul by what it enjoys and loves and moder- and puts its mind upon, what it meditates upon. So what is your greatest and best thought? It's the Lord, right? That, that, that should be something that's just reflexively thought of. But consider this. What's God's best thought? What's the greatest thought? most valuable, most glorious thing in all of the universe. So if the value of a soul is measured by what it values, what should God value? God. So this is what Piper's point is. So it is with God. The worth and excellence of God's soul, Metatelics is his, God's soul is to be measured by the object of his love. It is even more true for him than for us. That love is that powerful and prevalent passion of the soul on which both its perfections and happiness depend. So if God's love is His powerful and prevalent passion, the omnipotent energy of His approval and enjoyment and delight, then the pleasures of God are the measure and the excellency of His soul. And His point throughout that book then is to say, and God's greatest pleasure is in Himself. And that is good for God to be like that. Because if God were to value me or you like that, He would be an idol worshiper. Now, my point would be, in believers then, 
that we ought to glorify one another. Right? The Trinity is unity as it glorifies itself. And that we ought to be in the habit of glorifying one another. Have you ever heard that before? I mean, it sounds a little audacious, doesn't it? Like, like when I say, I, I, I should be glorifying Rudy. People will be like, oh, down. Like, you can be nice to him, but glorify, that's like worship words. If we're to be like the, the Trinity, I think I'm okay saying glorify, especially when we think what glorify means. To enhance the reputation. That's what glorification is. Should I be enhancing Rudy's reputation? Yeah, I should. Now, let, me, let me point out two thoughts on that. If, if I value what God values, and God's greatest joy and value is godliness, then what should I be passionate about glorifying in Rudy? His godliness. In, in, in ways he reflects Christ. In ways in which he, he shows that he is like his Savior and he is like his Creator. I ought to see it and hold a flag up and wave it for the world to see and the church to see and say, hey everybody, Rudy is like Jesus. And in so doing, who am I really glorifying? God. Now, as I enhance Rudy's reputation... I build God's reputation. And that's my ultimate desire. And so I delight in what I see of God in Rudy. In fact, I think this is the principle you see in James 3. In James 3, he talks about the tongue. And he says that the tongue is is this little tiny part of your body that has massive, massive power. Right? You you recall that? It's like a a rudder of a ship. It's like a spark in the forest. It, it, It can do massive, massive things. Even though it's this tiny little body part. In James 3, 9, 10, um, he says that, that with our tongue we bless God and curse men, and he condemns it. Do you know why he condemns that? Why does he condemn that? God created man how? In his image. Now, now, he is making a theological point, and I think we can flip it on its head and turn it around, and the point works both ways. And that is, there's something inconsistent about uh, the person who blesses God. God, you're good and you're glorious, and looks at his fellow man who's patterned after God and says, you're worthless. You're scum. Because there is something in every man that is patterned after God, which means that there's something in every man that I can glorify. Right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think more precisely, if we love God and we find God glorious then we ought to find those who look like God glorious. And even an unbeliever is still made in the image of God and still borrows created glory because he's made, he's patterned after God. So that every person in your church, whether they were saved for three minutes or saved for 30 years, there is some way in which you ought to be able to find reflection of their creator and glorify them. 
Does that make sense? Now, when you think of it like that, this would build unity, wouldn't it? I love people who love me. What? <laughs> well, let's all be honest. Don't you? Don't you like people who like you, who, who tell you and encourage you and build you up and strengthen you? Listen, there doesn't need to be ever any dishonesty in this. Because even the person who's not a believer has created image-bearing reflection. How much more the one who's redeemed is implanted with a new nature and has the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit to conform him into the glory of Christ through the glorious word by the glorious spirit. That should be easy stuff. Now, think about this on a Sunday morning or any time during church life. Have you ever been in a church that got torn apart by gossip? Have you ever seen some of the roadkill as the church drove, drove by? I mean, I'll interact with them, and maybe I'll invite them to church, or they find out I'm a pastor, and they'll say things like, oh, I've given up on the church. So why have you given up on the church? Well, and they start just unfolding their story, and a lot of times they've just been shredded by Christian piranhas. It wasn't necessarily one person. It was a school of so-called Christians that just little bit after little bit just shredded them. How that tragic? Real unity. We ought to be glorifying one another. And I think we ought to be committed to the task of glorification of the body. So that when someone does something and it's 99% train wreck, find the 1% and encourage them with it. And encourage them publicly. Uh, I tend to be an analytical, which is code for me getting off of the hook for being critical. Um, I, I tend to evaluate things and, and think through how it can improve, and so I, I, I can overemphasize negative things. And so I've been trying to discipline myself every time when I get up to preach that I start with praising someone in our church or some ministry in our church or the music team or the singing of our church so that I'll start as I get up before I open the Word and say, I'm just so thankful for, and, and start that way. For, for a couple of reasons, I want our church to love our church. I think I also had an example, this commitment to honoring God's people, to glorifying and enhancing their reputation. And I realize that's a weakness of mine, and so I want to get better as a pastor at enhancing the reputation and the glory of God's people. Number two, page four. Actually, sorry, page five. Unity and love. I think love gets gets place of prominence in many discussions, um, but I think if you look at John and his themes, glory should have place of prominence. Love comes second. God loves God. Are you familiar with the term narcissism? This is not narcissism. God is not, God is not a God who has some twisted form of self-love, who is proud without reason to be. Again, going back to that idea from Henry Scogel, uh, the excellency of a soul is measured by what it loves or by what it sets its mind upon. God loves what is best and greatest in the world. That's himself. And by the way, I know I'm backtracking a little bit here. If God has made you in his image and redeemed you and saved you, will you always be lovable? And I know this is not a way, especially when you think of depravity and uh, reformed thinking. But I think this is, this is something that God loves in every creature that he's made in his image. He loves his image. 
I mean, if anyone's going to obey James 3, it would be the God who inspired it. And that is, I, I think God still thinks His creation was made very good. And that gives me hope that God loves and it's not anchored to me earning it, deserving it. But it's anchored to the reflection of His own glory that He made me with. And that ought to, that ought to help us build consistent love within our churches too. Okay, page five, unity and love. God loves God. By that, uh, what we mean is that God's will values and cares for what is of greatest value because God is good. God's deep-seated commitment is to do good. In theology, we call that self-communication. And sometimes I mention these things because you'll hear other people talking about love being the self-communication of God, which to me doesn't make any sense. But, but the point is, essentially, that God takes what he has in himself and, and shares it, communicates it is the idea, shares it, and that's love. So, so God doing that to what is most valuable means ultimately that the Father loving the Son means the Father will share with the Son and give to the Son and be generous with the Son and the Son with the Father and the Spirit with the Son and the Father and that there will be mutual sharing and doing and serving within the Trinity because they in fact love each other. The sacrifices and acts of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit uh, are, are done for each other because they love each other. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, he's speaking to Christians in the context of trials. But in so doing, he reveals character. That is, God is consistently a God who does what? He's a God who gives. You with me? What does he give? Good gifts. Why? Because God is, how does it start out? We're in the same verse, right? Every good and every perfect gift is from above and coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow due to change. God gives good gifts because He is good. Okay? Love is an expression of goodness. So if you were to look at a lot of systematic theologies, they don't have necessarily love as an attribute of God. They have goodness. And then coming from goodness is His doing love for people and for Himself. That is, love is an expression of his character to do good. The Father loves the Son, John 3.35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 5.20, the Father loves the Son and shows him that he himself excuse me, shows him all that he himself is doing. And born to him by majesty, born to him by the majesty, majestic glory. I'm having a hard time reading my small print here, sorry. Let me try to reread that. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing and born to Him by the majestic glory that is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John seventeen twenty four, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me. Why does the Father give glory to Jesus? Because He loves Him. Do, do you see in these passages how the Father acts and his act is grounded in his love. Okay, so let me ask you, what is love? I've talked about it a little bit, but I really haven't defined it very well. What is love? Devotion. Devotion? I think that's actually a better word than I was expecting. Usually when we think of love, what do we think of? Okay, sacrifice. 
uh, you do not. That, you, that was just dishonest. No one, when they're getting married, says, I love you. Or, in other words, I sacrifice you. When you say, I love you, in that context, what are you thinking? Adore. Ad- uh, yes, there we go. Adore and affections and feelings. That's generally what we're thinking. Now, you know, because we've kind of been talking about it a little bit, that's not where I'm going. So you guys were cheating. Just admit it. Okay. When we talk about God's love, we're not talking about His affections first. We're talking about, and you, what was the word you said? The first word. Devotion. Devotion. I think that's a great word. I, I think... Um, I, I like the word loyalty or commitment as well. It's a commitment to do good. That's what love really is biblically. Now, what is good? When we talk about doing good for someone, what does good mean? Okay, what is the greatest good in all the universe? So if I'm going to do good for you, what am I going to do for you? What? Promote godliness. Exactly, because I am going to help you get what is most valuable. The most valuable thing for you to own is godliness. So genuine love is self-communicating. That is giving what I have. Now, I'm being practical here, but think of this in terms of God. It is, having, it, it is taking my resources and investing them in those I love and am committed to. That's what love means. Am committed to by helping them become godly. Because that is what is their greatest good. Their greatest good is not to feel good about themselves. Their greatest good is not to be happy with me. Their greatest good is to look like Jesus. So, if I really love them, I am committed to helping them pursue godliness. So when God loves God, what we have is God committing to act in ways that help God to behave godly. And to show His godliness. And to live out that godliness. So that God, the Father, gives God the Son the freedom to be sovereign. Which is what God already is. Because He's godly. He gives Him the freedom to give life. And you see some of these, and we'll continue on through them. The Son loves the Father, John 17. John 14. I mentioned goodness is transitive love. That is, goodness does. It doesn't just sit. Um, which I, I think is pretty, pretty understandable in our Christian world, that if you truly love someone, you do something for them. You serve them. You act in love. You don't just say you love. And so for the person who says, I love Jesus, but don't go to church, that's like the person who says, I love my wife, but I can't stand living with her. Dishonest. I mean, you may honestly think that, but you're a moron. And your wife will tell you that. Right? You cannot love your wife and refuse to live with her. You must love your wife and live in harmony with her as husband and wife. You are one. You can't live as two and call that, well, you can call it. This is not honestly love. Okay, so the father and the son love each other. I just kind of highlight by italics the, the actions you see. John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 15, 10, I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in His love. John 17, 24, my glory uh, that you have given me because you love me. You see, the behavior of the Trinity is predicated on love, a commitment to do good to the other. 
so that the Father and the Son love each other. Now, you don't see the Spirit in here very much. And again, that's because John's purpose is to elevate and put forward the Son in his gospel so that we see that Jesus is the divine Son. So it's, it's really outside of his purpose to talk about the Spirit very much. It's not that the Spirit somehow is excluded from this discussion. Uh, point C here on page 6. God's love is wise. Louis Burkhoff says this in his theology. Since God is absolutely good in himself, his love cannot find complete satisfaction in any object that falls short of absolute perfection. He loves his rational creatures for his own sake. To express it otherwise, he loves in them himself. His virtues, his work, his gifts. He does not even withdraw his love completely from the sinner in his present sinful state, though the latter sin is an abomination to him, since he recognized even in the sinner his image bearer. I, I think that's a fantastic thought, that God loves what he sees in us when he sees himself. He loves that reflection. First um, John 4, 7, I think, helps us understand then why the unbeliever cannot truly love. So, so I want to deal with a couple apologetics issues. So in John 4, 7, he says, if someone truly loves, they've been born of God. I think in, like an unbeliever, let's just imagine a man on the street, you're just talking to a friend, maybe, maybe you're waiting at the courthouse for jury duty, and you're just sitting there talking. And they say, you know, this verse bothers me. It says, if you love, you've been born of God. And yet you Christians think that most of us haven't been born of God, but I love my grandkids. That doesn't make any sense. Go. What's your answer? I know you're all waiting for me to answer. So, so think, think through. How would you answer that? I'm sorry? Okay. Which is to be godly. Exactly. And that is, what they think they have as love is actually not love because there's no context of godliness in it. They're truly not giving their kids something of value or their grandkids something of value. And there's no godwardness in their affections and desires and commitments. It's all personal. In other words, I can imagine a noble, and I use that word loosely, a noble, unbelieving family valuing family. And so the greatest value for them is family. I mean, think of this Italian family, you know, where it's like, it's all about the family. You know, you you honor the family, you love the family, you meet with the family, you eat with the family. Do you want to have a whole bunch of family worshipers in your home? Or people who worship the Lord? You see, ultimately, in that home, family is an idol. And only one God can save and no idol has ever saved and ever will. You see how that, I mean, but the problem is, and the challenge for that person in jury duty, is that they don't even buy into that worldview. I mean, it's like you're a Martian. They just have no idea how to connect. You don't speak the same language. You don't love the same things. But you ought to understand what God is saying there. That there is a Christian love, and anything else besides that Christian love does not qualify as love itself. You want a good example of God's love for the sinners? God so loved the world that he... So does God's love, is it transitive? Does it do good for the object it loves? Absolutely. 
Second one, and this was mentioned a little bit this morning with Chris, I was worried. His, his topic and some of his passages were with mine, so I was sitting in the front row nervously taking notes while he was preaching going, please don't say that, please don't say that. So this is one of the ones where he kind of said what I'm going to say now, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's valuable. When we look at the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there is something distinctly good and glorious as God shows how he loves And in such a way that no other religion can match it. If you talk to a Muslim, they would say Allah is love. I mean, they just totally plagiarize the Bible and plug in Allah instead of God. Allah is love. So let's just rewind time. We go back past Muhammad, past Jesus, past King David, past Moses, past the pyramids, past the flood, past Adam and Eve, The world vanishes, and now we're in pre-creation time. Eternity past. And we have two opposing worldviews. The God of the Bible, the Trinitarian God, and Allah. And they're in a conversation. Oh, just imagine with me. They're in a conversation. And God says, I am love. And Allah says, I am love. Who wins the argument? Why? Why? I wouldn't say just because he can demonstrate it, because he actually is doing it. Who does, who does Allah love? He doesn't love anybody. Does he have a transit of love? Is there any object for him to love? No. And in fact, if Allah is going to love, he needs to create. If Allah truly is love, he has to create, and then he can say, <laughs> See, now I have something to love. In other words, if, if Allah truly is in his essential nature, those things essential to him being God, if he has to love to be God, and I'm, again, I'm using loosely, if you're with me and following the argument, then he has to have an object he had to create. He was a needy God. Now think about that. what that does to the idea of a, an almighty, all-sufficient, happy God. Allah is a beggar. He's a satanic plagiarization on the God of the Bible. He does not love. Let's turn that conversation and ask about the God of the Bible, the Trinitarian God. And all says, God of love, who do you love? And the Father looks at him like, you moron. I love the Son and I love the Spirit. And eternally I've loved them. Creation is not something I need to do to express love. I love Fellowship with the other two persons in the Godhead. It's game over. It's all that needs to be said. See, Allah cannot be a God of love because eternity passed, there would have been no love. So either Allah is changed and grown, which means sometimes past, he, he was imperfect. Which is, I mean, his human imagination, he's completely imperfect. Like I said, he's a satanic counterfeit. He's a plagiarization on the God of the Bible. So either Allah learned to love, in which case it shows he wasn't what he should have been. He was a God that was insufficient in the past. Or the God of the Bible is really true, and that's actually the case. Okay, so continuing on here, just as we wrap up the idea of love. Loving God causes love for other believers. So why is this important for believers to get a hold of? Page 6. 
We, we glory because we glory in the image of God. What do we love? What does this mean for us in just everyday life? You guys got really quiet. What does this mean? Who can I love? Everyone, Everyone created in God's image. I realize some of you pet lovers out there are feeling a little slighted right now. And I'm going to tell you, get over it. Jesus didn't die for Fido. You may love him. But even that, do you really love him? Because Fido is never going to look like our glorious God. You think about the work God is doing, how majestic it is to take us and make us look like his son. That's amazing. That's love. And that's what the church ought to be involved in, in that process. So why is this important for believers? I think it anchors our love to something that's unchanging. How many times have you been hurt by someone in your church? Can you even hold up fingers to represent the numbers of time someone has stepped on your toes in some way in your church? And not literally. (laughs) Unless they meant to. But I mean, people often will say things or do things that that inconvenience us, hurt us, bother us, or, or even perhaps intentionally damage us. Don't they? I mean, I know there are Dozens upon dozens of times I've had to go to my wife and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And not only admit I've sinned, but ask her to forgive me and grant her the right to release me from the damage I've done to her and to our marriage. I'm thankful that I have a wife who's committed to loving me, but I also want to be in a church and be part of a church and be someone in my church that expresses a commitment that's anchored not to their behavior, but to the fact that they are created in the image of God. Because no matter how ugly they are in expressing their attitude towards me, they are still an image bearer. And that is worth loving, because God loves his image. How do we normally love? What does normal love look like in a church? Come on. Okay. Okay, that, that's what it should be. We should love people without asking for something in return, which isn't really love. I mean, that's a business transaction. <laughs> right? I will do this, but come on. What are you going to do for me? Well, I would add to that, and one of the things I, I love about good, healthy churches is you see, um, you see cross uh, what, what demographics. So, so you'll have like a small group or a Sunday school where you have a 22-year-old married couple and you have a widower who is 89 and they are buds. That's awesome. And that's a fantastic picture of God's unconditional love. But I think if we live in the flesh, if we just live naturally in the, our human strength, we love people who like what we like, who laugh at our jokes and like us. Which means we like people who give us what we want, which is friendship. We want friendship. And generally speaking, I would also add our world is becoming more and more isolated and more and more superficial. Um, I've, I've mentioned our neighbor at our church. I don't have many people in our church who would have heard me say this, but I used to work out of my house, and I, my office was facing the street, so I could see about three or four houses on either side of our house. But our neighbors across the street, and they still are relatively private, they have a son who's a year older than Haddon, and now they're best buds, so we've actually got to meet them. But for about the first six years I lived there and worked at home, I only knew the wife 
and this can sound bad, but by the bottom of her legs. Because she would drive her BMW into the garage. Actually, she would drive. She would open the garage, pull into the garage, wait until the garage door is almost down, step out and walk inside. And she would never step foot in her yard. She never crossed the street. We never knew them at all, didn't know their names. They never talked to us. They're incredibly private. And I think that's more and more normal. And even at a restaurant. Have you ever watched families at a restaurant now? We are losing the ability to love socially. And if there's one place where the world ought to walk and say, this place is different, it ought to be the community that echoes the Trinity, that loves the godliness and the, the, the image of God within each person in its community. And is deeply committed to loving and expressing that love, just like the Trinity does in behavior. Page 7. Unity in serving and deferring. I think one of the glorious things about our Trinity is that you see the delight they get in serving one another. God serves God. So if you, if you were to think through just the outline, the three ways we have expressing uh, fellowship or unity within the Trinity is God glorifies God, God loves God, and God serves God. The Son delights to do the will of the Father. The Father listens to the Son and responds to His prayer. And the Spirit is sent by the Father at the behest of the Son. The Trinity delights in serving one another for the glory of one another. And we could add, because they love one another. The Trinity serves one another and defers. The Son works the will of the Father. The Father defers to the Son. And the Spirit works the will of the Son by the commission of the Father. We could add to that last phrase here. John is filled with the Son serving the Father. Um, let me just park on John 4, because I think it's a fantastic one, and I want to take you to John 17. These are both passages that are worth a message in their own right. So John 4 is the woman at the well story. It's the end of the story. Jesus meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that no one likes. I should say no Jew likes, because um, I'm going to use a racial kind of idea here. She's a half-breed. That's how a Jew would think. You know, she's someone who's crossed the, who, who, who's the result of someone crossing the line socially. And so they were to look down on them as, as, as a class of people. Jesus is meeting, to, meeting with her, shares the gospel with her, and she does what? She gets saved. By the way, in terms of just like overview passage. He says, you want to, you want to, be, you want to be satisfied, drink water, and you'll never be thirsty again. She, she wants the magic water. And Jesus basically says, you don't get it. You are chasing satisfaction. You are on your sixth man. Five marriages and one man later. Is she chasing satisfaction? Man, she's chasing it, and she can't find it. And she's burned through men, because they cannot satisfy. But God satisfies. And so Jesus is saying, I love you enough to bring you to God. It's an act of love, isn't it? Helping her to become like God by being redeemed by Him and walk in fellowship with Him. She gets saved. The disciples come back. Jesus has been here probably hours talking with this lady, ministering to her, leading her to saving hope in God. And they say, hey, Jesus, you want a burger? What does he say? I've had food. There are no burger wrappers here. Where did you get your food? And his answer is, my food is what? My food is a labor for my Father. Now, if that doesn't tell you something about satisfaction, 
He starts with telling the woman, you're chasing it in all the wrong places. You're chasing it by pursuing romantic relationships or sexual satisfaction. But real soul satisfaction only comes through God. And then we get to the end and Jesus says, and I'm an example. I don't need food. I have been satisfied by laboring for the will of my Father. I'm good. That's a good day of ministry and love. When you are so topped out with God that you really just aren't even hungry, literally hungry. I think that's a, I think just one of those passages that I think is cool because I will think like this, God, help me to love serving your people enough that I am satisfied. But I want you to think what that means for Jesus and his joy and how he looks at life. If you looked at serving the people in front of you, the cultural outcasts, the people who have nothing to offer you, the people who have nothing lovely about themselves, and coming alongside of them and helping them to know your God, to be forgiven, or to be a little bit more like Jesus, if that filled your happy cup so full you didn't want to eat food, imagine having that attitude and what that would do to the energy you have to serve your king. Wouldn't that be a fun place to be? Where on Sunday morning, you are just stoked. Not because your pastor is just dynamic or the worship team just blows it out every Sunday morning, but because you'll have a chance to meet with God's people and in the meeting of God's people, you are going to help them come and meet with Jesus and be like Jesus and you're going to walk away with joy because you served your maker and he satisfies you in the serving. That's what's happening with Jesus. Uh, John 17, I want to come back to that, but let's move on. Um, the Father defers to the Son. Okay, so the Father obeys, or excuse me, the Son obeys the Father, but the Father defers to the Son. So, for instance, in prayer, um, Jesus in John 11, nope, not John 11, where am I at here? Yeah, it is John, John 11, verse 42. I knew that you always, it's kind of cut around by that text box there. I knew that you always hear me. So Jesus prays and he says, I know you always hear me. What gives him that confidence? He knows his father defers to him. In fact, you'll see all judgment is given to the son. Um, life is given to the son. What, what's happening here is the father is handing off to Jesus major responsibilities so that Jesus can do them. He's deferring to the Son, giving Him the right to grant resurrection life to anyone. He's deferring to the Son judgment over this whole world. The Son is obeying the will of the Father. You see John 14 and 15 at the end there. The Spirit is sent by the Father through the Son. So, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance that I have said to you. John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. You see both the Father and the Son involved in sending the Spirit. So in that sense, they're deferring to one another. They're serving, they're laboring, but they're doing so in relationship to each other. So we talk about fellowship within the Trinity. What are we talking about? We're talking about at least three components from John. They do what? They glorify, so they enhance the reputation of the other. They love one another, and they serve one another. And this is what Jesus prays for you to accomplish 
in your church. That you would build and enhance the reputation of others. That you would love others. And that you would serve others. And all of this is an investment in what is most precious and valuable. And that is God himself. Because that's how God invests in the Trinity. That's how he is unified. Unity is fellowship. I want to end here because fellowship is a biblical word that's been co-opted by potlucks and other things. And, and I'm not bitter at potlucks. Um, just, my point is, is that we've dumbed down the word so that it now has lost its, its significance. So when we talk about a church valuing fellowship, be honest, don't you hear? They value chit-chat and conversations and, and, and shallow friendships. I mean, isn't that, I mean, not that we want to keep it shallow, but that's really what, you know, like a church fellowship. What does a church fellowship usually entail? And chit-chat. That's not biblical. Okay, so we've, we've taken the concept and it's kind of evolved, or, or maybe better, devolved into this, this um, really shallow reflection of the depth that it should have biblically. So Hebrews 13.6. Every one of these words has the word fellowship in it, by the way. It's a Greek word, koinonia, if you're, you're interested Thirteen six. Do not neglect to do good and to fellowship what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, I, I read the word fellowship. What does it say? Share. What are you sharing? What do you have? Okay, that's true. You have God. What else do you have? What? Be specific with blessings. Okay. What? What gifts? Time. There we go. Talents. What else do you have? Money. Yeah, some of you have more than others, but money. So time, talents, money, and God. I, I think those are pretty good. Now, if we were to go back to Hebrews 13, and our church knows because we've been in Hebrews for two years, Hebrews 13 tells us how to interact with others. It says, love the brothers. Love strangers. He says, live in marital purity. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. It says, do not love money. All of that is at the beginning of chapter 13. And he's calling on us to understand. And then he, calls, he, he says, um, uh, to submit to your, your church leaders. All of this, I think, is leading us to understand what he means when he talks about sharing. He's talking about literally sharing life, caring for strangers, loving others, um, not sharing sex with someone who's not your spouse. I mean, I think that's a fantastic recognition that purity is a gift of love to your spouse. And then not loving money. This is what he means. So he's talking about partnering with others who are under the name of Christ and giving of our time and our talent and our energy in order to promote godliness within them. Philippians 1.5 Because of your partnership or your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, if you were to look in Hebrews 4, 13, and 18, it talks both about suffering and finances. So fellowship here includes what? Hurting and suffering the costs of ministry alongside of the apostle for the Philippians. He is, he is in chains. He is in prison. He is being beat. He is poor. And they put their arms around him. They send servants from their church to bring him money and to minister and to encourage him. And in so doing, Paul says, we are fellowshipping in the gospel. We are partnering together, sharing life in the gospel. Second um, Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not have fellowship, or excuse me, what fellowship has righteousness with, un, uh, with lawlessness. 
And his point is that there's a real partnership. So let's, let's, let's consider this fellowship within the Trinity, that unity that they have, is a deep commitment. It is a closeness. It is, it is co-laboring, mutual labor, and deferring to one another. It is, it is love that does. It is building the reputation of others. That's what fellowship should be like within the church. Fellowship is not chit-chat. It is sharing life. It is loving and enhancing the reputation of others. It is serving them. That's what fellowship should mean within a church. That's what we should be doing. Now, when the world sees this, the response of the world is to say what? Well, hopefully beyond wow. But yes, it starts with wow, and then what? Yeah, and I think this is a God thing. They see our community and say, that is different. That isn't a whole bunch of guys with beers cheering because someone threw a ball 60 yards. That's different. I don't get that. I don't understand that. It must be a God thing. If you look at the passage in John 17, verse 21 and 23, it gives credibility to the gospel message. The gospel is, is authenticated as true because of how it transforms a bunch of self-centered, egotistical, wicked, broken, weak people and moves them to look like the glory of Christ. And the world sees broken people being made whole. It sees, sees people loving others who are social outcasts. It sees a, a community that glorifies one another and doesn't tear each other down and isn't promoting themselves. And they say, that's, that's not of this world. Therefore, their message must not be of this world either. And the foundation of that is God indwelling his people. Okay, any questions? Because I've been working back and forth between Trinity and application because that's where Jesus is praying, right? I want them to be one as, just as, we are one. I want them to be indwelt because I dwell in the Father and the Father dwells in me. So I've been kind of bouncing back and forth between the idea of theology and practice. Um, I think we have a few minutes left. I've, I've not been looking at my clock. Do we have time? I have five minutes? I have, my, I have seven minutes on my clock. Same. <laughs> Any questions? We don't have to um, belabor the point if there are not any questions. I know I got to preaching a couple times. I, I think this is a really amazing passage when you think of the implications of what's going on. Don't you want to be a church that looks like this? I can tell you I want to be in a church that, that this is going to sound really rotten. I want to be in a church that glorifies me and loves me. Isn't that the church you want to be a part of? No, I'm not saying that. Hopefully I'm not saying that selfishly. I mean, our hearts are deceitful. I think the person that's most deceived by your heart is you, me for me, right? I mean, that's the most dangerous person to be deceived by yourself, but I think that's exactly what Jeremiah means. But, but I want to be in a church where when I go, people, people want me to look like Jesus more than they want me to feel good about myself. I mean, at the end of the day, I will feel good if I look like Jesus. But that will probably be because I'm walking on pure grace because I'm a bum without it. But I'd rather be dependent on grace than walking independence. Because we all know it wouldn't be walking. So any, any Trinity questions? You guys are just wanting me to quit, aren't you?
Yes. Could you expand a little bit what you mean uh, in the unity and serving? What do you what do you mean by the Father deferring? Well, that's, that's a great question. It it seems as though when when Jesus interacts and says the Father has given all judgment, or He has given life to the Son, that that the Father has handed Him the responsibility and obligation of administrating that freely. So that, so that who's our judge? The son. Why is he the judge? The father defers to him. So it would be like this. You think about it with your, with your wife. Um, I, I believe the Bible teaches very clearly that husbands are to be leaders in the home. I defer to my wife when it comes to all matters of food and decorations. <laughs> and anyone who eats at my house and sees my house notices that those things are done well because I have deferred. I, I've, I'm the leader. Technically, although I'd be just a moron to do it, I could say, I'm going to decorate. It would look bad. When we, when we got married, I lived in my apartment for a year. I don't think there was a single decoration in the whole thing. And what's worse is I didn't even think about it. Like, it didn't even dawn on me that my walls were totally white. There was not one knick-knack decoration, portrait, nothing in my house. It was just, it was totally white. And I was happy as a clam. That didn't bother me a bit. I got married, I went to work, I came home, and my house exploded. There's stuff all over. And it looked good. And I was like, ah, it looks nice. Keep going. I've deferred. Because I've given her the authority and the freedom to decorate. She runs things by me occasionally, but that's just to make me feel good about it. She doesn't need my opinion. She does a great job on her own. Any other questions? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I have a question not on the unity part, but just sure. the Trinity. Yeah. Not that I get it pre-incarnation, but it's easier for me to understand Trinity pre-incarnation. Sure. Post-incarnation. Right. Um, it hurts my head. Uh, is Jesus, I mean, he's, he is still human. Yes. Uh, is he... Um, I wouldn't say it the way you said it. I would clear it up theologically. When I refer to the Son, I'm usually kind of focusing on the, on the deity of, of the God-man. And when I talk about Jesus, I'm usually focusing on his humanity. I do that personally. I think that's fairly consistent among a lot of other theologians. So when you say, is Jesus omnipresent, it, it, that, that feels like it's stretching my mind in ways it doesn't like because you're focusing on his humanity. His humanity is not. Okay? But his deity is. So even when Jesus walked the earth... Jesus was located in Galilee or Jerusalem, but the Son of God would have been omnipresent and omniscient. So you want a mind twister to keep pressing on that one. When Jesus says, only the Father knows, I don't think his point was the Son doesn't know. I think his point was Jesus, the human, had never had the truth communicated through the Son to him. So his human side didn't know. And it's really bad as a human side, God's side. But you're with me? Yeah. And that's, I actually put on a footnote in this. We've been talking about fellowship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And we can very easily just slip into tritheism, which means there's three gods. There are not three gods, there's one God. So keep that in mind. We're talking about Father, Son, and Spirit. And we just, because we're humans and because we're weak-minded, we'll just start naturally thinking in three gods. There's one God. And He dwells in three persons, or exists in three persons. Any other questions? Yeah. Well, you're welcome to ask. I, I may just like table it and talk to you afterwards. Is it accurate, in your opinion, to say, remember when Jesus and Peter are walking at the 
Right, right. Mm-hmm. That that would include evangelism and all the gifts and all the wonderful stuff we, we do in the church for baby believers in the hospital, you know, the Christian hospital, and praying for. And is that all inclusive? So when we feed the sheep, are we supposed to? Is it the whole enchilada? Is the church supposed to be the whole enchilada, which means evangelism and praying and worship and all those things? I, I probably wouldn't go to that passage to answer that because I think I think it it probably puts. It puts burden on the text that Jesus isn't necessarily thinking of. I think he's looking at Peter and saying, take care of my lambs. Okay, thank you. Let me ask a simple question. What does Jesus mean when he says, feed my sheep? Because that's all he's asking Peter. What is he saying? Maybe it's just because I'm seeing Peter's giftedness behind that, but I think he's telling Peter to care for the flock by ministering the word of God to them. But but to answer your question in a broadly way, I'd be okay with saying it's the whole enchilada. But I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily try to shoehorn it into that passage as much as I go to Matthew 28, where he says, go, make disciples, and baptize them, teach them to observe all things. I think that's the whole enchilada in summary. Are you a Baptist? Yes. And we can can talk more later. Um, I thought we had another hand. Yes. Um, give, give me a second. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I have it in my Kindle, and I'm. I just can't remember the title, so I'm, I'll pull it up for you in a second. Um, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. I think it's a fairly easy reading. Uh, excuse me, writing style, and, and he makes you want to worship God. You know, so you read it, and you just you love the idea of Trinity, and you see how it's unique and glorious. And you walk away with a higher view of God because of him. It's also not a long, detailed book where you get into the weeds and just get lost in philosophy or rhetoric. It's, 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 it's good. I think it's a good entry level in just the beauty of Trinity and our Trinitarian God. All right, any other questions, thoughts? We're kind of at that 3.30 mark. I know we have till 4, technically, if you really are driven to ask me questions. But what we can do is I can dismiss, and then anyone who wants to can stay afterwards and burn the oil talking about these things. Rudy, am I handing it back over to you? Or do you want me to just end in prayer? We can keep going. We're going to, um, once we're dismissed, there is water and some snacks out there, and we'll start back up at 4 right at the hang Okay. There is your PSA. And uh, let's, just, let's just wrap up in prayer. Um, our God is glorious. And I think, I think the doctrine of the Trinity is a, it's a unique doctrine in the sense that we don't focus on it much as a church. I mean, when's the last time you heard a preaching message? on Trinitarianism, excluding the conference. You know, this morning, right? We don't, we don't hear it very often in our regular churches, and I think, uh, I'm just very thankful for Grace Bible pulling this to the front of the stage and, and focusing on it. Very, I, I think it's encouraging to think through our God and who He is and how He stands totally different than all the plagiarizations that Satan has offered in the world's religions and how our God is glorious because of His three persons. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for being this majestic God. We glory in your persons, that you are Son and Spirit, and that through your divine will, Father, you have architected this glorious rescue from sin. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who you sent as Lamb to die for us, and we are eagerly waiting when he will come as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Father, thank you for working with your 
spirit in our lives to open our eyes. I pray that you would give us a bold, clear vision of Christ that we might see his glory and magnify him. Do so through your Holy Spirit. Help us to love Christ, to know him and to walk in his truth. Father, thank you so much that you and the Son and the Spirit are all indwelling each believer to transform us because you love us and want to make us look like you so that you can delight in us. Thank you for this just marvelous thought that you've given us from John 17. In Jesus' name, amen.